Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, as always, Nico Perino, and I'm here in FIRE's Washington, D.C. headquarters with my colleague, Adam Goldstein. Adam, welcome onto the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I had the idea, I think it was only a couple of days ago, to do a podcast about fair use and copyright. I work in the communications department at FIRE. We're often creating podcasts like this, uh, video, images, memes, things of that nature uh, that pull together different media from different places. And sometimes that media isn't always media that we created. We're repurposing media created elsewhere. And one of the constant struggles that those of us who work in creative enterprises have is figuring out what we can use that someone else created. Oftentimes we pay for that media, but sometimes it falls under what those of us in the creative enterprise call fair use and what the government calls fair use. When you came to work here at FIRE a couple of years back, uh, we got to talking and it sounds like you have a background in fair use and in copyright issues and uh, not just a background, it and an interest in it as well. So let's get your story first. Where'd you go to law school? What got you interested in First Amendment issues? And then what in particular got you interested in figuring out what people like me can use when we're creating different media? Sure. Well, I say I went to law school at Fordham uh, in New York. I went to undergrad at Fordham in New York too. So it was a uh, seven years at 60th and 10th in, in Manhattan. Um, but my fascination with uh, intellectual property is actually older than my fascination with the First Amendment. Uh, I, I was more interested in intellectual property pretty much up until uh, undergrad when I started just thinking, I, I might like to be a journalist with my life. And then, of course, that gives you a real need to love the First Amendment, too. But I, I remember even being a small child and seeing a poster for uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe toys. And I, I looked next to the names, and some of the names had a TM next to them, and some of the names had an R in a circle next to them. And I thought, that's weird. I don't know what the difference is, but I'm curious as to what, what the difference is. I had an inkling because I noticed that all the really big characters had the R. <laughs> and of course, later on in life, I would learn that those are the names that uh, Mattel thought they should register because somebody might go out and make a bootleg Skeletor or make a bootleg He-Man. So the TM is trademark. The R is... Is registered trademark. Uh, they're asserting that they have the trademark in all of these things, but they've only filed, filed the paperwork with the government for the ones that have the R in the circle. Gotcha. Because they feel like that's what we're actually going to have to sue someone over. So the R means that you have a greater legal claim over the product or property or intellectual property than you would. Right. You're, you're entitled to some statutory rights because you actually went to the government in advance and said, hey, I'm putting everybody on notice. I've done all the research. I've looked. No one else is using this name right now. And I'm using it for this. And the government has said, yep, we agree. And they've put it on the register. So there's a, it's kind of a presumption that someone infringing is doing it out of malice because had they looked, they could have seen your, your copyright in He-Man. Whereas uh, for some of the later characters, I, I don't think Mossman got registered. 
I, I think that by that time, Mattel had just said, you know, I don't think bootleg Moss Men is going to be a big problem for us uh, financially. So we're just going to, if we have to sue, we'll sue, but we're not going to spend the money to get it registered in advance. But you obviously took your interest in this one step further than just figuring out what that TM and that R meant. I did. Well, then it, it moved on to uh, video games and the evolution of intellectual property through the 80s and 90s was also like my growing up in the 80s and 90s. And so th this idea of, of people owning ephemeral things like video games, what, what, what I perceived as ephemeral, you know, moving images on the screen, I thought was really cool and really inventive. And as I was learning about it, it turns out courts were figuring it out as they went along too. Uh, when I was six or seven, you, and you read the court decisions from 1984 and 1985, uh, the presumption was that people didn't know what a video game was because the law moves more slowly than pop culture. Obviously, in pop culture, everybody had Pac-Man fever at that point. But in the law, when most of the judges were in their 70s, they felt the need to describe in great detail what a video game was. So there's a semi-infamous decision uh, from the U.S. trade court where they spend two pages describing Pac-Man, uh, including the joystick, two, two words, joystick, because who would know what that is? And I, I'll always remember this because there's a footnote where in describing the, the game, they describe the cutscenes and they describe the, the uh, second cutscene to the third cutscene where Pac-Man is chased by a ghost and they go across the screen, they come back and the ghost gets its costume trapped on a crack in the floor. There's like a little line on the screen and it tears and you see what looks like a leg under like as, as if they were just throwing a sheet over their head. And the judge described it as revealing an ignominious physiognomy, <laughs> a phrase I have never heard since. Uh, I thought, wow, this must be really important for somebody to take Pac-Man this seriously. Cause I'd played it a bunch of times and it didn't, I never thought to, to find the, the fanciest words to describe the ghost's anatomy. He was doing this because the defense in the case was this shouldn't be subject to copyright at all because it's not really fixed in a tangible medium of expression. And it, and somebody had to actually decide this is subject to a tangible medium of expression. They said, yes, it's true that Pac-Man moves to the left and to the right, but he doesn't change beyond the like eight frames of, of animation that make a Pac-Man. So he moves, but he's still fixed. When I think about things that – and we should actually probably – start by defining our terms because I realize probably even even just setting up this conversation I used terms that I shouldn't have used in describing what I was describing so there's trademark sure there's a registered copyright there's this I'm assuming broader umbrella of intellectual property under which trademark and copyright fall and then there's something when we're talking about things more tangible maybe or maybe even not the, this idea of a patent Sure, patents. Patents are for are things that are useful in theory, like machines. Uh, we recognize drug patents, and we recognize uh, uh, trade dress patents sometimes. Which, which what for about like technology patents? You come up with a new way of utilizing a technology. Well, for for a patent, it has to be truly an original creation where no one's created it before, or at least the thing you added to it has never been created before. And then as long as you register it, you get exclusive use, which would mean even if somebody invents it independently without you, you can stop them from using it for the length of your patent. Uh, the, the flip side is that patents aren't particularly long. You get, you know, 20 years-ish. 
depending yeah. on your the idea being creative. that people can hopefully after those you you recoup the costs and coming up with the idea and then other people can innovate on top of that idea right we're saying we're going to give you the exclusive use and the idea that it's going to incentivize you to create and, and then we're going to limit it in the idea it's going to incentivize people to then work on work on the basis of what you've done and build on it yeah, and this is where you get generic drugs, for example. Someone comes up with a groundbreaking drug, they get their 20 years or whatever it is under the law, and then you get the generic drugs that come after it, usually cheaper. But the hope is that those drug companies that invested all that research and development money in creating that original drug have recouped the cost within that 20 years and then made a and even, hopefully and healthy even profit. made a decent profit to yeah. incentivize them to keep to stay on in this business and you know not say forget it and go into something else. So how is a patent different than a trademark? Well, uh, with a trademark, you get exclusive use for as long as you continue to use it. Uh, but your your protection is limited to the use of that that identifying factor. I was going to say name. We generally think of trademarks as names, but anything that could be a potential identifying um, factor. And when I say identifying, so like a brand. Means- like the brand of a company or the brand of a product or product line? A brand is, but it's, it's any any element of that that would identify to the consumer the origin of that of that good or service. So like a color can be a trademark if you promote it enough to make it a trademark, which is why we ended with what can brown do for you when we talk about UPS. And we all sort of understand when we get the little sugar packets, right, that – one fake sweetener is going to be pink, depending on what the chemicals are. One fake sweetener is going to be blue, and the sugar is going to be in the white packet. And that's just a convention that has sort of evolved among among the uh, producers for for the convenience of of the uh, of the consumer. Um, fragrances, if they are distinctive enough, can be an uh, L as as long as they're non functional. <laughs> This is where you get tricky because you can't copyright a perfume because the fragrance is considered a functional element. So you can't trademark a perfume. But you can uh, – if I were to make envelopes and for whatever reason, my envelopes, I decided I was going to have them lavender scented and that was going to be my signature. As long as the consumer on the street recognized, oh, that that's, that's a Goldstein envelope, I can protect that as long as I want to keep making them. Okay. So you it, it doesn't give you a great deal but – but the purpose of trademark is a little bit different as c- compared to copyright or patent in that its primary purpose is to protect the consumer. The, the primary purpose of a trademark is you want people who are shopping for, an, for a good to understand what they can look at to determine this is truly the thing I'm looking for. It's from the actual place. It's to avoid uh, fakes and counterfeits and passing off. Okay, so – What's a for example in this case? Like Home Depot has that trademark orange that you see. Or well, I'm a, <laughs> I even use it colloquially, trademark orange. It's right. like the, it's it has particular... a sort of brand look. Like if you and it has, I, I believe it's its logo is built within a house. So right. someone else who wanted to maybe crib off of Home Depot's brand reputation, they could use orange. They could use the house. They could set up their logo just the same, except slightly different. In order to hopefully, in their eyes, maybe trick people into thinking that they're Home Depot and go there for their home goods. Exactly. And that's something that Home Depot would be able to enforce against. And one of the famous cases in this area dealt with the attempt to open a fast um, overnight stay uh, hotel, let's Mm -hmm. call it. And watch your hands there, Adam, because the microphone's (laughs) so sensitive. This uh, overnight stay hotel 
And it was part of the Quality Inn's umbrella that they called Mick Sleep. McDonald's didn't like this. They, they were of the opinion that Mick Anything was McDonald's. And uh, ultimately, McDonald's won. They were able to show that there were enough people who were actually confused when they saw Mick Sleep that uh, the court said people are genuinely people genuinely think that if it says Mick something, this is owned by by the burger people. Hmm. Uh, part of that was both sides, and this is how all trademark lawsuits end up working this way, where both sides do surveys. They uh, try to show that. You know, the, the the side who wants to use the stuff tries to show that people aren't really confused, and the side that wants to prevent it tries to show that people are really confused. So they took a artist's conception. Both sides had the same artist's conception. They asked slightly different questions, and they got slightly different results. But the court said, yeah, I mean, it was roughly, you know, 50-50, 60-40. But the bottom line is in the artist's conception on the sign where it says Mix Sleep, it says right under the name, a quality inns brand. So even though the picture has the answer of who do you think runs this 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 uh, hotel, half the people still got it wrong and said McDonald's. That's a problem. <laughs> Especially when trademark, as you say, is in place primarily for the consumer. Exactly. So that's why they're doing these surveys is they're trying to figure out what the consumer actually thinks. And then presumably if the consumer is fooled for lack of a better word, into thinking that this Quality Inn hotel is actually a McDonald's hotel, then while well, McDonald's has a case. Exactly. Or for that matter, the consumer could have a case. You could have a situation where both parties agree this is totally cool. But if for whatever reason it confuses cons- the, the, the consumer, the Federal Trade Commission could step in and say, you just can't do this anymore. So you can file a complaint as a company that owns a mark or as a consumer who thinks they're purchasing a mark. Right. You, you you would go to the Federal Trade Commission and say, I thought I was staying at the, at the burger place and it was some hotel chain instead, and now I feel defrauded. Hmm. Interesting. So in the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of companies or products put that lowercase i in front of it, like iPod. Uh, I don't know. You see them all the time. Things yeah. trying to crib on Apple's iPod, iMac brand. But it doesn't seem as though... Apple's done a good job of getting rid of that. It's just kind of become a part of the culture at this point that new technology will sometimes appear with the eye in front of it. Yeah, this is what is is sort of incorrectly called uh, genericide in 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 trade in trademark law in that the idea that once something reaches a certain level of popularity in the consciousness, it suddenly stops referring to the object or product you want it to refer to and refers to everything of that class or everything that shares something like that. And that's like a Q-tip or like Kleenex. Q-tip, or Kleenex. Xerox was the original one. And Xerox has spent a lot of money trying to, trying to uh, reclaim it uh, where you're a victim of your own success. You are a victim of, of your own success. And that's why like people who really want to skate at that level of popular culture have to invest a huge amount of money in it. And and Coca-Cola is, is is the big winning example there where for, you know, there was a time th- for 30 years in in the South where if anything that, that was a cola was a Coke. And in some places that still may be true at a certain generation, but Coke spent a lot of money on advertising and spent a lot of money policing restaurants where they would send people in undercover to ask for a cola and or ask for a Coke. And if they got a Pepsi... The only people who could actually tell the difference, blindfolded, <laughs> the Coke's yeah. employees, 
uh, they and would actually then, I'm not so sure. <laughs> they would actually send a letter saying, you know, you've got to stop. When people ask for a Coke, you've got to tell them you don't have it. Or, or, or you got to buy it from us. You can't just give them a Pepsi. Hmm. And they've been pretty successful with they've that? They've been very successful with that. Now, you know, in just about any chain restaurant you go to, and a lot of the independent ones, if they don't have Coke, they will let you know. If you, you say, I'd like a Coke, they say, is Pepsi fine? Because <laughs> that's what we got. That's is true. Is RC Cola fine? Yeah. So, but, but they've spent, I mean, Coke has spent a huge amount of money on that. Hmm. So, again, to go back for our listeners and viewers, because this is going to go up on YouTube as well, for a Xerox machine, the machine itself is what you would patent. I'm assuming the Xerox brand is what you would trademark. trademark. What's copyright then? Copyright is uh, the right of authors and creators to exploit the benefit of their work for a limited time. It it covers uh, anything. So trademark is in in perpetuity. Trademark doesn't end as long as you continue to use it. You you continue to get the trademark. Patent. Does end, but it's different than copyright. Right, patent is much shorter. Okay. Uh, copyright, there's different terms depending on when works are created and whether they're institutionally created. Uh, it's like, now it's like if you're an individual, you get a copyright for your entire natural life, and then 70 years thereafter, your heirs get to benef- the, the benefit of it. Uh, institutional created works, I think, are 120 years after first publication now. Unless you're Disney, in which you can just change unless you're Disney, life. in which you just yeah, you just asks you know you call up Sonny Bone or you call up whoever is in the is an office and you get another twenty years every time you make a phone call. So <laughs> it's it's good to be the king, you know. <laughs> yeah. So what what is something that you would copyright? We've t- discussed an example of what you would patent the Xerox machine, uh, what you would trademark the brand Xerox and any of its slogans, perhaps um, or taglines. What what what's something that you would copyright? Pretty much anything you would think of as uh, a medium for art would be subject to copyright protection. A so song, songs, uh, anything written, uh, artwork like paintings, sculptures. Uh, for for dances, you can copyright the choreography notes as written works, mm. and you get some protection there. Although, as uh, Alfonso Ribeiro found out, the dance has to be sufficiently original, and um, the Carlton dance was not was not at that level, but <laughs> as opposed to say, you know, Swan Lake, right? Yeah. Where there's enough, it's elaborate enough and it's distinctive enough that this might actually be something that's subject to protection. Did I hear that Happy Birthday, the song is copyright, copyrighted? It was, and although I think now people sort of recognize that that claim was probably not accurate. for, But for many years, uh, I believe it was ASCAP, either ASCAP or BMI was, you know, they'd, they'd send you a nasty gram if you sang that over the air and you didn't have their permission. Uh, I, I think, I want to say 10 years ago, maybe 15, there was a, a news piece debunking the sort of claims of authorship. And after that, I think everybody kind of calmed down and said, okay, fine. Maybe the, maybe happy birthday is fine. We're not going to enforce that one anymore. Okay. So I think we've covered the three big pieces of intellectual property, right? Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's trade secret is the other one, okay. but trade secret is like the, is really simple in that. If it's a secret and you don't tell anybody, you can keep it a secret as long as you keep it a secret. It's this weird self-executing kind of area of the law where what it really means is if as a business you take reasonable steps to protect the secrecy of your of your secret. Then it's like the secret sauce on a special hamburger. Right. Or infamously the formula for Coke. And then more bafflingly the formula for new Coke. <laughs> for some reason they protected that like they sold it for 78 days in 85 and they put it in the vault anyway but I mean I guess you have the vault you may as well put it in the vault yeah. but still like it's not like people were rushing out to to make new coke but 
okay, sure. As long as you keep it a secret and and you don't, you know, you you act like it's a secret, you have the ability to protect it from certain types of disclosures. Mm-hmm. So trade secrets, trademarks, patents, all things you need to register, correct? Uh, you don't have to register a trade secret and you actually don't have to register a trademark. Okay. Patents you have to register because they have to go through a whole a whole process of making sure this really is something new, that it's not actually something we've invented before. Copyrights you don't have to register, though. Right? You don't have to. It, it helps to. It, you, you, you get some benefits, and if you want to sue, you have to. Okay. Uh, but no, you, you know, the copyright protection starts from the moment something is fixed in a tangible medium. So, so why, why would it matter that something's copyrighted? Or copywritten, I don't know what the past, whatever the past tense right. is there. Um, why would it matter if you can't sue and enforce the copyright? Well, you you can. You just have to register it before you can enforce it. Okay. And then the scope of damages changes depending on whether it was registered at the time of the lawsuit or at the, at, at the time of the infringement. I so, so I can write a book that I don't register and then I see someone stealing my chapter or whatever from the book or maybe even the book wholesale. And I decide I want to sue them. I can then go and register it. And then once it's registered, sue them. So I can do the post hoc re- registration in preparation for the suit. But then the court would look at whether it was registered before the stealing happened. Right. And and federal and, and I'm talking about federal courts too. There's some states where they'll let you, you know, in equity file a lawsuit to stop someone from distributing something in that state. Where I don't I don't think the states. I mean. I don't know of any states that require that federal registration. That's the whole point of being a state is the federal government does its thing and you do your thing. Yeah. But the benefits of statutory damages are limited to infringements that happened either after registration or within within a certain period of registration if the, if the infringement happened within six months of the publication. Gotcha. So there's times where, you know, if basically if you've published it, you've got six months to go out there and, and start that registration process. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we took – 20 minutes here laying the groundwork. And now let's circle back to my original purpose of having you on this podcast is even if you've if something is uh, is copyrighted, copywritten or is trademarked perhaps c- people can use those creations in new ways so long as they follow certain rules that are often hard to figure out that you learn from various court cases when and when in which people try to figure these things out, right? This is called fair use. So, uh, for example, I am creating a video or I'm creating a podcast, and we've had this on previous podcasts, where we take audio from some other source, maybe it's a news station, maybe it's a movie, and cut in a few seconds of it to help, um, you know, hammer a point home harder or something. Uh, or... We reference something that uh, a Barack Obama said in a speech, and we cut that in from NBC, which broadcast it. So how do those of us who are creators of new things navigate what we can and can't use in what we're creating? And you see this with meme culture, I'm assuming, all the time. People create oh, yeah. new memes on, on the internet, and often the images are not images that they took with their own camera. That's half. The, that's half the fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> the exaggeration that you add to it when you're making a meme. Yeah. Um, the the most important thing to understand about fair use as a creator, and really, I mean, anybody who wants to interact with it, is that it's meant to be uncertain. 
Uh, this is also what makes it. Wait, what do you, yeah, what do you mean by that? Uh, it, it is not meant to give a fixed answer to a simple question. <laughs> I know this is a very strange thing to say, but the concept of fair use is designed to be flexible enough to protect people who are doing things we think are valuable and to not quite reach the people who are doing things we think are um, economically harmful to creators and not of other independent value. Okay, so flush that out a little bit for me. Um, so what are the what are the things that a creator might use someone someone else's creation for that we as a society think is valuable and want to protect? Well, we, we we actually ended up enumerating some of them in in the 1976 Copyright Act when we added statutory fair use. Although fair use existed for 240 years before we wrote down a statute about it, there was common law fair use that's older than than the United States that we inherited with. English common law. Mm-hmm. So, so, so one of the, I think one of the problems with this, the fair use statute as it's written, because it is written really obliquely and with a lot of uncertainty to it, is that it, it was sort of written in light of two centuries and change of common law that is not transparent to the end user. <laughs> you know, as someone who, who you say, well, I, I wonder if I have a fair use and you open up the statute and you read it. Without 240 years of history, it's even more baffling. Yeah. But examples of, of uses that would be protected, uh, comment and criticism is the most classic. Uh, you know, I want to say something about this thing I saw that upset me. Like, I didn't like Captain Marvel. I want to tell you why I didn't like Captain Or I did like Captain Marvel, and I thought the cat was great, and I want to tell you all about that. Mm-hmm. I'm allowed to take some amount of that work to show you what it was I liked or didn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, parody and satire are two similar but different things. Satire is using a work to make a point about some other thing in the world. So parody is using a work to make fun of the work itself. And you get some protection for doing those things. And those are the kind of the, the types of uses, but the types of uses aren't the only lens that we use according to the statute. Mm-hmm. We also look at who's doing the use. Like what what is the purpose of the use in commercial non-commercial perhaps? Exactly, commercial non-commercial and this is where when you're in that gray area of uncertainty, that fair use is a big, wide gray area of uncertainty, and you're trying to figure out, does this move the needle closer towards infringement or closer towards a fair use? You say, well, look, this is a nonprofit organization that is trying to comment on a, on a news story that sounds a lot more like a fair use than this is a factory that's pumping out reproductions of official merchandise. You say, that doesn't look fair to me. It might still be. There's other factors, but it doesn't look fair to me. Uh, and also one of the most important things about that fair use statute to remember is it says a court shall consider, which is which means it's a non-exclusive list. And there have been numerous cases over over American history where the court said, yeah, I looked at all four factors. I didn't think they were important. I'm introducing brand new factor number five. And I think one side wins because I think this is the most important factor that I just made up. So we just talked about two factors, the sure. kinds of use, you know, satire, criticism. I'm sure there's plenty others. What else would fall under the kind of use? Um, well, artistic use. Yeah, artistic use. Educational use. You know, if you want to use it in a classroom, is is is, is another big one. Okay, and then the user is—is is it someone? Is it someone just sitting behind their computer screen creating something for fun in their parents' basement, or is it a, a non-commercial enterprise, a non-profit enterprise, or is it a company that's trying to crib off of Mattel's uh, product right. <laughs> in order to sell something for a Knock profit? Knock off Mossman. Yeah. Right? So, so those are two. Factor. Those are two. 
The third is the amount and substantiality of the portion used is how they write it. Um, that is both a quantitative test and a qualitative test mm -hmm. in that the amount of the amount used is a percentage, right? Uh, often you'll see a common fair use would be a, a single movie frame in a newspaper review of a movie because that single frame quantitatively represents a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the movie. Yeah. I think very few people see a single frame from a movie and say, well, good enough. I don't have to see the movie now because I saw that one frame. You know, I saw Captain Marvel flying in the frame. It's got to be the same thing. It's just more of that for 40 minutes, right? So, um, no, people say, well, this doesn't – this is just a very small portion of the movie. I want to see the whole movie. So, let's say you're a news organization and uh, I don't know if the viewers can see it uh, in the back of the frame here, but I've got uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, – I've got, you know, Charlie Hebdo was involved, uh, was, a, was a publication in France that was the subject of the terrorist attack. And uh, let's say you're reporting on that terrorist attack and you want to show the cover of one of the publications that prompted the terrorists to want to attack them. Would that be fair use if you're printing that in the New York Times? That would absolutely be fair use. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's an essential element to a news story. And news reporting is one of those protected things we care about. Gotcha. So oftentimes we watch movies and we see products or movies or documentaries and we see products in the background. Let's say I'm out on the street, I'm interviewing someone and there's like a Rite Aid in the background. Can you have that in the background? Because sometimes you see it blurred out. Sure. Other times you do not. And I guess I should probably preface this by saying any of our listeners or viewers who are he hearing Adam go through this, you <laughs> uh, you know, don't take his word for it. If you're creating a movie, you should probably go and seek outside legal advice. Most definitely. But, I mean, it is, it is, as I said, it's, it's very gray. So little things will shift it one way or the other. And it's, and you're, you're far better off getting somebody to look at your particular situation because yeah. this could be entirely different based on something we haven't even thought to bring up in this discussion. But yeah. Uh, Ordinarily, if it's incidental to the thing that's happening and it's a factual representation of what's happening, there's no particular obligation to remove it. Uh, sometimes news channels that have other things on them will blur things out anyway because – To be extra safe. To be extra safe. I mean if you're the – but there would be a problem with doing that too, because then that one time you don't blur it out, that court, <laughs> that that company can come to you and say, "Well, you blurred out everyone else's, but our logo, for example." Right, and and a lot of times there's no obligation to, to blur it, but they were trying to appease the big advertiser. Mm -hmm. So if 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 you're Joe Sandwich Shop and you show up in the background of To Catch a Predator, you know NBC may not be super motivated to blur to blur you out. Whereas you know if you're McDonald's and you show up in the background of To Catch a Predator. Suddenly, they might be actually really interested in blurring your logo because it, I bet you you buy more ad space. Uh, but that, well, that wouldn't change the the fair use calculus. That no, not at all. Okay. That's just that's just I'm trying to be nice to people. But certainly, if for whatever reason the predator shows at McDonald's, which did happen, that's why I'm using this example on to catch a predator, you absolutely can can include the McDonald's regalia <laughs> for lack of a better, it's probably a better word for Burger King, but uh, the, the, the McDonald's is licensing if it happens to organically show up in the show. Okay. So we've got the user, we've got the type of use, we've got the duration of the yeah. use. And, but, and, and we're only halfway through three because we said amounted substantiality. Okay. Substantiality is how significant is this portion you took to the meaning of the overall whole. Uh, so this is a two-parter. It's a two-parter, right. And, and, and the famous... The famous case about this is the Ford's Memoirs case. Okay. Where uh, 
President Ford writes a 600-page memoir, evidently, and he had an ex- well, his publisher had an exclusive deal to publish excerpts with uh, Time Magazine, I think it was. But as happens with any embargoed book, uh, a bookseller put it out in the window early. We, we saw this with every Harry Top- with every Harry Potter book too. Uh, a journalist was walking by, saw the book, and bought it. Turned out the journalist worked for the Nation, and the Nation published two pages of the 600-page book. Well, that third factor is the amount and substantiality. And up till this point, the Nation's doing pretty well in the test. Like they they are a news publication. This is this work has importance to the public. I mean, it is the memoirs of a president. It's not like it's not like that doesn't have some significance newsworthy from a newsworthiness uh, perspective. It's not. It's the amount is low. It's just two pages low. in a six hundred page memoir. But but the Supreme Court said it was a very substantial two pages because it was the two pages where Ford discussed pardoning Nixon, and the Supreme Court said if you were going to pay the the cover price for this book, which I think at the time was twenty five, it's twenty four ninety nine or something like that, said essentially the, the the import of the ruling is we don't think anyone would pay twenty four ninety nine for anything Ford wrote except for the two pages where he discussed why he would pardon Nixon. Which I thought, man, what a weird way to kick a guy when he's down. <laughs> like, uh, but that was the that, that was the decision because they and and this sort of translates into other things too. Where I talked about you take that one still from the movie, but if you take the still from the horror movie where the killer takes off the mask, you've taken the whole value of the movie. Now you've ruined the ending of the movie for me. Yeah. So that takes the whole value of it, even though what you took was quantitatively small. It was qualitatively the heart of the work is the phrase that the Supreme Court used. Yeah. Okay. Now, what is that fourth factor? The fourth factor is the effect on the value, on the market value of the underlying work by the new use. Uh, Sometimes you hear it called the market replacement test, which is this idea of if I wanted to buy the original work, can I buy this work instead and get the full value of the original work? Does this satisfy my need to have that? Is Uh, there an important case on this score? that might kind of elucidate there's there's a there's a few although they're all kind of tricky <laughs> in okay. some ways i mean market because you you can measure part of it depends on what do you consider the market i mean the, the the case that ended up being settled so we never got a ruling but is the best illustration of difficulty in defining this test is the uh shepherd fairy obama hope poster where that was an alteration of an associated press photograph did the Hope poster replace the market for the Associated Press photograph? I don't know. What's the market? Well, the Associated Press sells photos to newspapers, to online publications, and also to anybody who wants to go to their photo library and pay them a certain amount of money. They'll, they'll license the photo. But what does the Hope poster – what is the market for the Hope poster? Well, it was for voters, right? Fans of Obama – is there overlap between somebody who might want to buy a Hope poster and might want to buy a, a photo of the president? Maybe, mm-hmm. but it's not the same. If I'm if I'm a news publication, I don't want the Hope poster. I want my AP because photo. It, it doesn't. I mean, when I think of the Hope poster, I didn't. I, I I'm sure it must have come from an original photograph, but it it doesn't look. It's a very stylized image of Obama with. Uh, it's it almost looks like a mosaic. Uh, I'll try and link to it in the in the show notes here. But it's it's got the all these different kind of stylized colors pieces. It, it, it says hope on it, of course, which probably wasn't in the original. Wasn't well, so not, not in the original photo. So this is the idea. This is like a creator, someone sitting behind a computer screen, taking an image that served a news purpose before. They like Obama and creating a 
kind of new, I don't even know what you would call it, a poster out of it. Yeah, I mean, the, certainly one of the issues that came up later was the transformative use test, which I guess we'll get into next. But the, the idea that – Oh, there's a fifth factor. Huh? Well, it's it's sort of a replacement factor. It's like th- because this test is very difficult to use, I I don't generally recommend – creators sit down and try to use these four factors. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're, they're tricky. They can be misleading. If you don't sit around and read all the case law, it's hard to know what any of these things actually mean. I mean, amount of substantiality alone as like a test is a, is a weird phrase. But like the, the, the second factor is actually written as like the purpose and character. No, the first factor is the purpose and character of the use. The second factor is the nature of the copyrighted work. Meaning what? And in theory, that what that means is is it a factual work or is it an expressive work? Um, we all know that y- you can't copyright a fact. If something is just true, it's true, which is why when people got sued for copying phone books or copying phone numbers out of phone books, ultimately the Supreme Court said you can't stop people from copying phone numbers out of phone books. It used to be common with, with, uh, with map makers. If you made a map, so you would include fake cities on it or fake features on the map. To see who was trying to steal to your map. To see who copied your map. Because yeah. if, you know, if you actually went out there and you verified what all the cities were in Arizona, and a guy takes your map of Arizona and they included, you know, Goldsteinville, which I know isn't a real place. Mm-hmm. Well, actually I don't, but I assume isn't a real place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, apologies to, to, to the citizens of Goldsteinville if you're out there anywhere. I, I did not know. Um, but they, they sort of stopped doing that because the Supreme Court said, well, we don't care. If you represent it as a fact... People are allowed to copy facts, so mm-hmm. you, you know your 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 cleverness to figure out who's been copying you is understood, but it doesn't give you the right to stop them from copying you because you can copy a fact. Okay, so have we covered kind of everything you need to know when analyzing whether your creative use of something that other someone else created is it falls under fair use? We haven't covered the most important one, which is what is the what, what people actually do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's the test that the higher this test ranks, the, the better you come out on this test, the less we care about anything else. This is that transformative use. This is okay. the transformative use test, which is, did you add a new and different meaning to the work than the meaning intended by the original author? And what this is what courts have said, is that the more transformative a work is, the less significant we think any of the other factors are. How much you take becomes less significant. Uh, the substantial, how substantial the portion you took was, I mean, if you take the heart of the work, it's less significant. It might still matter in some cases, but we're going to devalue that factor. Uh, the effect on the market, we're going to devalue that factor somewhat because what we really care about is, are you doing something different? Did you add new value to this? Or are you just trying to pass off on the value its original creator had? Does crediting the original creator matter? At all when determining fair use? Almost Let's, never. Okay. Because um, I, I, sometimes you'll see in movies uh, or documentaries in particular, like in the bottom right-hand corner and the news stories, credit to this YouTube user, for example, because right. they got the clip <laughs> from YouTube. Uh, and it could be that the credit is there because they reached out to the creator and asked permission to use and the creator said, yes, as long as you credit me. might also be there just because they put it there because they think it's they better might. than doing nothing. I'll say that about it. Like if, if if I had to choose between taking someone's clip and taking someone's clip with crediting them, I would credit them. But nothing in fair use changes by virtue of including the credit. Uh, some places, it, it's sort of a convention to a degree because an alternative to copyright schemes is the Creative Commons licensing, mm-hmm. 
where you see sometimes like there'll be a little badge licensed under CC attribution 3.0 license and you click on it and it takes you to a web page that says you can use it as long as you attribute it. Yeah. So sometimes it, it helps in that. And sometimes all the creator wants is credit and it's simpler to post it in there than it is at the end. Cause there's, a, are you familiar with Barstool Sports? Yeah. They have an Instagram account where they're, it pretty much is just all content created by other people. And <laughs> they credit this Instagram user or that Instagram user or this Twitter or Facebook user or this Twitter or Facebook user in sharing their videos. And they are a for-profit company that is getting likes, follows, tweets because of this stuff. And there's actually been a couple of controversies where they've taken someone else's content and uh, those people have gotten pissed at them uh, as a result. I mean, it's not like they're even using a portion of the content either. They're using the entirety of the content, but they always credit the user. <laughs> and in my mind, unsophisticated mind, I'm like, oh, well, they're crediting the user. So that must be how they get away with it. But you're saying no. No, I mean, if it's one of those things where 999 out of 1,000 people might be cool with that. But one day you, you hit the one guy who wasn't cool with it. And now you've got a real legal question there where it's going to depend on how well you argue it and what judge you get on what day. Which it goes back to this idea of why is it a gray area? <laughs> like why is face a gray area? Well, we feel like, you know, if if you're the guy who's who's the nonprofit and you're the guy who's the news reporter, we want you to feel like you're gonna get the benefit of the doubt when these questions come up. Mm-hmm. When you're the for profit corporation, I, I would be more nervous because I, I feel like I'm not going into the courtroom with the with the presumption that fair use is for me. So what about professional sports? I watch the NFL a lot. Mm-hmm. Before and after the game, they say you, no part of this broadcast can be used without the express written permission of the NFL. Can it, though? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, like. So, despite their saying you can't use any portion of this, no matter how it's used, no matter what length is used, you can't use it because it's copyrighted by the NFL and you can only use it if you get permission from us. You're saying. That statement is essentially meaningless. They can't actually enforce that. I mean, it might be nice to want to do that. And this is one area where we never officially got full resolution of this. But there, I think it's pretty clear there is some portion of statutory fair use that is mandated by the First Amendment. And that's that gets us to the First Amendment, First Amendment free speech connection, which of course right. is the the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it is first amendment law is actually very similar in that it does have a lot of these gray areas and they're gray because we recognize we can't envision everything that's ever going to happen. We know that there's going to be situations confronting us. We haven't seen before. So we want to create a body of law that has principles that allow us to stretch them in a way that feels predictable and fair, but also acknowledges the future is unknown and we don't know what things are going to look like in the future. I mean, I get, I, I was said earlier, there's times where courts will be like, I don't think any of these four factors matter. I'm going to decide this on this new factor I just made up. That That is most common in cases where courts are confronted with new technology. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the cases earliest in my career I remember is when courts decided that caching browser history was a fair use. There's now a statutory exemption for that because the Copyright Office is very good about going back and adding in things that need to be added in over time and getting Congress to say, okay, this is okay and this is okay as we need to do it. Um, but at the time, there was no there was no exemption. And uh, you know the way web browsers work, they download a local copy of what's on the remote server and then display it to you and then save that copy. So if you go back, it loads faster and they can load other pages faster. It's how the internet works. Well, technologically, that's great, but there was no permission to make that copy. 
Because you could have, you could also have made the decision to just stream the content remotely, display it without without making a local copy saved. And so, since copying is one of the exclusive rights of copyright, technically speaking, this was an infringement. And I don't. What was the user's purpose? I don't know. People, people at working at commercial entities were infringing it. My competitors were downloading my web page and infringing it, and I could prove it because I've got their IP addresses. And the court said, "Yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it," but no. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. And they said this was part. This was a creation of technological innovation. The internet requires it to work properly, especially since it's the late '90s at the time. So it's not like our speeds, our internet speeds are that fast. You're telling me you want to slow down everybody's internet speed by a factor of five, and I'm saying no. I don't think you have that right. Hmm. <laughs> so you were drawing the parallels with the First Amendment insofar as kind of the way the law is applied is similar in in intellectual property, but. The purpose of fair use has a free speech implication insofar as fair use is often uh, is often claimed for the creation of expressive m- media. So documentaries, it's art, satire. I mean, I'd go even further than that and that the purpose of copyright law is for the creation of expressive media. And if you go to the Constitution, right, it says to promote the progress of science and the useful arts – we grant creators the exclusive use of their creations. So the progress of science and at the and use, useful arts the by the founders. That, the, the idea being that people will create because they they can uh, they can use that they can get a benefit from that creation monetarily or. But that's know. also why constitutionally our copyrights have to be time limited. We cannot grant a perpetual copyright in the United States because that doesn't promote the progress of science or the useful arts. Whereas uh, in the UK, there's a couple perpetual copyrights. Hmm. including the copyright in, in Peter Pan, because they decided, they being the House of Lords before the European community stripped most of their power, decided that uh, it would be bad for the copyright to expire because it had been given to a children's hospital that used the money to, to help sick children. So, so they so did it on an ad hoc basis. They just Yeah, they said, you know, by act of parliament, this is now perpetual copyright. The moment they did that, it became public domain in the United States because we can't respect a perpetual copyright because the Constitution says it... First of all, the Constitution says it has to be time limited. Second of all, it says it's promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Mm-hmm. So granting that copyright for a certain time limited period gives the creator the benefit. And then after a certain time, the benefit in their eyes needs to go out to the masses. This is, um, I remember when I was in college, I forget what year it was. Um, what year was Charles Darwin's Origin of Species written? Ooh. In any case, I was standing in front of Sample Gates at Indiana University and people were handing out uh, copies of The Origin of Species. And it was actually um, uh, members of this one religion. It was like a creationist interpretation of The Origin of Species. It had wow. a prologue that was written by someone, you know, kind of picking at Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. They were handing it out because I guess it had just gone into the public domain. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of my first interaction with uh intellectual property law because i was like oh you know charles darwin's been dead for a very long time uh but i guess his estate had exclusive rights to publish origin of species up until this week more or less (laughs) so um things enter into the public domain but it's different in every country in the united states in the united states it's been stalled for 20-ish years because uh disney was worried about mickey mouse and they got an extension yeah because mickey mouse was had a copyright and he was going to be heading to, towards the public domain and uh, couldn't have that. 
So they got a they got a twenty year extension. I think they just got another extension. If I'm or they're at least they're advocating for one. If if they haven't gotten it yet, so they don't get it themselves. But no, they, they changed the law for everybody. It. For everyone, for everybody. They 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 extend it further. Which is at some point you, you sort of wonder if they're going to keep doing that only because number one, as I said, trademark is is as good as long as you use it. Mickey Mouse is still a trademark. So you can lose a mark just by not using it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like a failure to continue to, to have the mark in, in continuous use will eventually. Is there any big case on that? Is there a company that? Um, actually, the, the one that I would probably bring up was Captain Marvel, because um, you know for many many years, the character that they now call Shazam was Captain Marvel, and uh, DC had bought Fawcett Publications that had published it as Captain Marvel. It was just a weird accident that another publishing company chose the name Marvel. So then for a long time. Uh, Marvel Comics was frustrated that they couldn't have a Captain Marvel because there was a because there was a use of Captain Marvel in DC, and ultimately they just you know DC was in was not doing financially well. They didn't publish it, didn't publish it for for a bunch of years, and as, as soon as they felt comfortable, then Marvel snapped, jumped up and got a Captain Marvel, which is why there's been five I think characters that use the Captain Marvel name over the years. Hmm. Uh, because the only thing really Marvel cares about is keeping it out of the hands of DC. I mean, they want to sell you know comic books and movies and things too. But the, the, from their perspective, they can never not be publishing something with Captain Marvel in yeah. it. Because as soon as they do that, the, that clock starts ticking. Where how long do you think DC has to wait before they decide it's now safe to use again? I don't know. I mean, it depends. Like, if if I could actually show that if there was a twenty four hour period where nothing was nothing was marketed with Captain Marvel's name on it from Marvel. And I was DC. I take a shot. Shoot. <laughs> hmm. So things that wouldn't be fair use are pretty much Napster's whole business model. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> things that are uh, primarily for profit. Um, one of the. But Napster was that was Napster for profit. It was not for profit at all, actually. But it failed but that market ta- replacement test. Where yes, it was for what, the. Let's describe for our listeners who. Maybe younger and not, might not remember sure, Napster like, in the early 2000s and Napster. Metallica's battles with them. Yes, <laughs> this is this is what what made me stop listening to Metallica, which is really pouty on my part because they weren't wrong. I just didn't like it. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Uh, the Napster was a semi-centralized, music, yeah, music pirating company. It was a music realistic. pirating service. Was was what it was for. It was uh, it was based based on this. It's an example of how rationalization can only get you so far as, as a business model, because you, you could say, "Well, look, if if I if I'm hanging out with my friends, and each of us has a CD, because back that was a thing, people had those, right? Now our computers don't even have them, right? We don't even have we don't, like if, if somebody gave me a CD, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I mean, it's it's actually it's a literal coaster. I got nothing. I got nothing here. It's, it's shiny, so I'll look at it. Um, but uh, you you get in a room with your friends, and you can trade CDs, and you can listen to them. And said, well, okay, well, how, why do I have to be in the room with my friends? Why can't I just trade my music with people from far away? Isn't that the same thing? It is not because <laughs> to do that requires making a lot of copies and those digital copies, copies yeah. digital copies, and that is going to infringe a bunch of rights. So uh, Napster ended up there and, and, and Napster isn't even the, the saddest story of that era for me. MP3.com is the saddest story for that era for me. MP3.com had a thing they called the music locker. CDs have this inner ring where, you know, if you, how you hold it up in the light and there's all the data. And then on the inside, you would see like numbers and things mm-hmm. kind of in that, in that inner ring. Um, MP3.com had a, a thing where you could put your CD into your drive rather than ripping it and having to deal with all the files. 
mp3.com had already done that. And they had a giant library of ripped files and high quality that they would stream to you if you put in the CD to prove you had a copy of it. Ah. But you only to put it in once and then you could... And they knew you had a copy of it because they could read that inner ring. They read that, they read that inner ring. Um, the recording industry, the RIAA, did, didn't like it because they had to rip copies of the albums to make the library that made the thing work. Hmm. The judge said, okay, that's statutory damages. And being relatively kind, I think, assessed, it was going to do it on a per album basis. There's various ways you can calculate damages. But at the end of the day, when he did the math, it was $500 million they were liable for, which uh, is real money now, let alone back then. I mean, that that was a whole lot of money back then. <laughs> um, like, that's... I, I don't even go so far as to say that's more than like Jeff Bezos has in his couch right now. 500 million. You can't just like search and, yeah. you know, buy it. Like that's, that's actually got to write a check or something. So, uh, he lowered it, the amount then uh, the damages. He did he after, after that? Oh, I, I don't know. Remember. I'm just asking. Um, I, it's actually, it's, it's a very savvy business model. You would think <laughs> that one of the uh, recording industries, you know, this is, a, I'm assuming before streaming became very popular, would have bought up that technology so that they're, customers could have more ways to use the product that they purchased. Right. I mean, had had this been had this evolved slightly differently, mp3.com could have partnered with the recording industry and would be a major destination everybody knows today. Mm-hmm. And everybody who everybody who owns stock in it would still be rich. <laughs> like Yeah. Hmm. I'm I, I'm not sure they lowered the damages. I think it was just clear that they didn't have that much money. Yeah, so it I'm ended up with you. the site just turning over with their assets. Okay. Napster not fair use. No, not <laughs> fair use at all. Not fair use. Because and and that goes and that and we're talking about the market, market replacement, replacement test, test there, since everything they were doing was uh, frustrating the sale the sale of an actual CD at the time. I don't think you know this was pre iTunes. There was no there was no legal way to buy MP3s for most of Napster's life. I think maybe towards the end of it that changed. Yeah. Okay. Final question for you. I guess I maybe have two questions. This is all very fascinating to me. I have no idea if it's fascinating to our listeners or to our <laughs> viewers, but it might be useful to some of them. It'll count for uh, something. Night of the Living Dead. Are you familiar with that story? Because my understanding is that Night of the Living Dead was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters, and they decided to change the name to the Night of the Living Dead. This is, of course, the zombie movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, in changing the name out, someone forgot to put the copyright notice at the front of it. And as a result, it immediately went into the public domain. And this is what just what I'm learning from Wikipedia and from stories I've heard. And as a result of it immediately going into the public domain, the zombie genre was more or less created because the public took things that this movie had and created their own zombie movies from it. Uh, but that's only because they didn't have the copyright notice in the beginning. Is that a, have you, are you familiar with that story? I, I, I hadn't heard that story, but that is actually that that was a big issue until 1989. Um, the the copyright law has been amended a few times over the years, and it's changed in its uh, formalities. Like in terms of calculating the duration of a copyright, or if something's in the public domain, you really have to use an online calculator because it is elaborate. Okay. <laughs> the, 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 all the little nuances, but one of the bigger ones was that up until 1989, I think it was March 1st, 89. I want to say it, it's sometime in 89. Uh, you had to have a copyright notice published with the work to get the benefit of copyright. And, and that's one of the things that changes. Sometimes, depending on when you published, registration was was what it required. Like you didn't get a copyright until you registered. Yeah. Now, if, now, of course, you get the copyright the moment you write it down, whether you have the registration notice or not. 
But for a long period, 76 to 89, 78 to 89, you had to have notice was, was what it required. So you had to have that little see in a circle the name of the, pub, the, the name of the author in the year. And if you didn't do that, if that wasn't somewhere on the work, it entered the public domain when it was published. So like, yeah, one, one, one art mistake would easily have had that effect. <laughs> yeah, not by not putting the copyright notice in the title slide. Interesting. What's the digital, what is it, Digital Millennium Copyright Act? This is like, sometimes you see people trying to take copyrighted material off the internet and they file yeah. one of these DM something takedown. DMCA takedown notices. Yeah. Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, it, it was rooted in this idea that there's a difference between fair use and fair access, right? Where, and, and, when it was being debated, debated in Congress, they used Blockbuster as an example because that existed. <laughs> and they said, you might have a fair, the ability to make a fair use of a movie in Blockbuster. If you want to do a review, you have the right to make a fair use of it. Yeah. You don't have the right to break into Blockbuster to get it. So they, they sort of try to analogize that and say, you can be liable for a copyright violation, even if you, what you did was protected, if you had to defeat an access control prevention measure to acquire the thing you're trying to make a fair use of. Um, access control prevention measure was then sort of helpfully defined as anything that stops you from getting to something. So for example, if I'm creating a documentary, as I am right now, and I go to ABC News and ask them for their archival footage for some event, and that archival footage is available nowhere else, and I have to go to ABC and I have to pay them to get access to it. If I pay them to get access to it, and then I get access to it and use it without crediting them or paying them for its publication, that would be that that could get you into some DMCA trouble. Yeah, it's not something we're going to do. Don't no. worry, ABC. But <laughs> other things that, that that the DMCA did was they specified a procedure for complaining about copyright online. Because what they, one thing that the government was concerned about was is this internet thing really going to take off or not? Because in '99, it had been around a while, but you know it, it could have been killed. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, the st the stock market sure thought it would take off, right? <laughs> and then it crashed they, and burned. They, they 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 thought it was going to be bigger than anything. They thought it was going to be. They thought internet was going to be Amazon. Um, what they wanted to do was create a method a method for avoiding getting the internet companies in the middle of copyright disputes. Because mm -hmm. ordinarily in copyright law. There's liability for anybody involved in the, in the infringement. Uh, if I if I infringe a copyright in, in in a book that I wrote, which happens at times, and I then take that book and I go to go to the bookstore and they sell it on the shelves in the bookstore, the bookstore is liable too, because anybody involved in the chain of distributing this this infringing work could be liable for copyright infringement. So they created this exception that says, if you're an internet company and you didn't create the content. You're not liable for infringing content posted by other users or providers as long as you do two things. One of them is you have to designate an agent with the copyright office, uh, an agent to, to receive service. And the other thing is you have to follow this checklist when you get notified of an infringement. Yeah. And the checklist uh, for anybody who's had a YouTube video taken down, they know this checklist pretty well because it's exactly what YouTube does where they say, uh, we, got we got notified that you have infringing content. So we took your video down. You can respond to us here. If you write back anything that – other than oops, if you write back I disagree, they put your video back up and then they trade your information and the other person's information that, so that you can sue each other. Mm. And that's their obligation. So as long as they do that, they aren't going to be liable for copyright infringement other people post in their and websites. And this is from the, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Right. Okay. 
Well, Adam, I, I think we're running out of time here. We've been talking about this for an hour. Is there anything any anything in here at the end that you want to add that you think's worth knowing about that we haven't discussed, of course? Well, I guess if if you really if you really want to try to get an organic understanding of copyright law uh, and and fair use law in particular, it, it is there is something to be said for there's some good law review articles out there that trace its evolution from English common law, where you can actually see that you know from the moment somebody conceived of fair use as a concept, it was to promote the public good. Mm-hmm. It it was to promote discourse and to promote the exchange of ideas. And that has held true in every iteration to today. So whenever you're faced with these questions, you know, uh, certainly ask yourself, am I making a new and different use? Ask yourself the transformative use question, but then also ask yourself, what would be the consequences of, of me not getting to do this as a fair use? Yeah. Would we lose something? Yeah, would the society lose something? What would, would other people lose, lose? What would other people not be able to do as a result of me not being able to do this? Exactly. If the answer is yes, we would lose something, that's probably what fair use is there to protect. If the answer is no, you know, there's 18 other people making these knockoff Mossman dolls, nobody's going to care, um, then then I would hesitate a little bit further and say, is should I be getting a license? If, 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 if there's 17 other people who got the license for this, should I be getting the license? But if what I'm doing doesn't have any analog because I'm creating something new, I'm adding a new meaning... Uh, maybe, maybe I'm okay. Maybe this is what I'm, maybe I'm, I'm the beneficiary. I'm who this was intended to protect all along. Well, we are certainly the beneficiary of all of your knowledge on this subject, Adam. I appreciate you sitting down with me today. That was Adam Goldstein. He's a program officer here at FIRE's Individual Rights Defense Program. Has an interest in intellectual property. Spent some time also, right, Adam, at the uh, Student Press Law Center? Yes, yeah, 13 years. Yeah, an organization we work with quite frequently. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. If you have feedback on this podcast or have a question for me or Adam, you can reach us at so to speak at thefire.org. And we can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk. As you know, we like reviews. Reviews help attract new listeners to the show. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And until next time, thank you again for listening. Thank you.